not. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 31 and 32 this morning. And we continue to go through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is giving us this vision for what it looks like for us to live as His new covenant kingdom community. It's one of the most beautiful and powerful, I would say, not only pieces of literature, but a visions of what it means to be a disciple in our world. I would even challenge those of you that maybe uh, won't have some summer goals. Uh, you might not only, as we've been trying to encourage, memorize the Beatitudes, the first 11 to 12 verses or so, but you might consider trying to memorize the entire Sermon on the Mount. But whether you memorize it, I would suggest that this becomes an area of constant meditation for us as it often is confusing for us what it looks like to be a different people in this world and yet be a people of faithfulness and love to God and one another. So we're going to continue this morning. We talked about a difficult issue last week, and this week is no exception. And so we read God's Word now in trust of His grace and truth. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are with us. We thank You that You are good. We need You. We pray that as we think through this text, this Word from You today, that You would remind us of all the beautiful and wonderful things that we've already sang and celebrated so far. Your redemption, Your mercy, Your love. We pray, God, that You would help us to not merely hear uh, the words and interpretation of a human, a man today, but that You would help us to tune in to Your Spirit, the Spirit of truth. We pray that You would help us to be convicted where we need to be convicted and to be comforted where we need to be comforted. We pray, God, that we would be led by You to not merely have an intellectual engagement today, but that You would change us for the stuff of everyday life as followers of Jesus, in whose name we pray, Amen. We are consumers, all of us, in this room. It's the air we breathe, it's in the water we drink. Whether it's about changing our clothes, changing our cars, or even, especially in our culture, even changing our churches. We don't just ask usually what is true or even what is good and beautiful, but we have these consumeristic questions that we ask about all these things in our life. And this is not all good, not all bad, but it just is what it is in a lot of ways. We ask, what does this say about me? That is, what does this say or do concerning my image or my status in the world? How am I perceived by others based on the product that I choose or consume? We also ask, how does it make me feel? Will this make me happy? 
Will this give me some type of instant gratification or comfort? We ask, how much will this cost? We ask, who will this product, this choice, this consumption, who will it make me identify with? Like, where will I belong if I, if I wear this hat or this shirt or drive this car? Where will it lead me to being accepted if I have this certain style, maybe? And in many ways, we always want this to be growing and being better or more or if your acceptance is maybe in the whole simplicity realm or less, it can go either way. And we often want it now. We want it as soon as possible. We want a product that's going to help us perform and we want it as soon as possible. Now last week we talked about we can often view people as products to consume. That this is around what is the issue of lust. Is that we objectify people. We want to use them for our instant gratification. We want to do that as long as we all we need is consent because now consent is king for the consumer. But we talked about how Jesus has a bigger picture of what it means to be in relationship to people that is not viewing them merely as products to be consumed, but as people to be loved. And today, Jesus continues this. Many people put these two texts together when they preach them and teach through them, but we've separated them. But that point continues on today. That when we think about marriage, oftentimes we enter marriage or try to continue in marriage or struggle through marriage or quit our marriages because we merely think of marriage in terms of a person to be consumed and not a partner to be loved. We view marriage as consumers. Will this person continue to meet my preferences and satisfy my passions rather than is this someone I am called to love in a life of a covenant relationship that reflects the commitment of Christ? And so the same questions can drive how you in here as singles think about marriage or, or regret or resent marriage or as those who are married, or some of you in here who have been married and are no longer, whether through death or divorce. What does it say about me? What kind of status does this give me or image? How does it make me feel? Does it give me the happiness and comfort that I feel like that I should get in life? How much is this going to cost for me either to enter it or to stay in it? And who will this make me belong with or be accepted by? And when these kind of questions rule how we think about our relationships, and particularly the relationship of marriage, we have to own the fact that we have moved from being covenant, committed followers of Christ in relationship to marriage, but merely consumers of a person that can give us what we want if they will submit to the story that we live in for our own glory. As we speak of this issue of divorce today, I just want to say something at the outset and we'll probably break, move around to it, is that we are a church that is driven by this mission to make the whole Jesus or the real Jesus known to the broken, burnout, and bored and to help them enjoy that because that's who we are. And so this is not a message today to heap shame 
unhealthy shame that is, or unhealthy guilt or condemnation or fear upon anyone, but it is to trust that Jesus gives us a way that is better in this world, something different, something deeper that directs us to the love of God. Even around this issue that is controversial, contested, and very complicated of divorce. But the main thing I want us to hang on to today, and we're going to show this from the text, is that we are called to engage marriage, whether considering entering it, engaging it, or reflecting on what was broken in your past, or even as encouraging others as those of you in here may be called to a life of celibacy, which is a beautiful gift and calling of God equally as well. But wherever you fall in that spectrum, we are called to engage marriage not as consumers, but as the covenant-keeping followers of our good King Jesus. So two questions that we're going to use to help us walk through this text today. The first one is, are you looking for a product to consume for your glory when you think about marriage? Or are you looking for a partner to covenant with for God's glory? Say those again. We're going to walk through those. Are you looking for a product to consume for your glory or are you looking for a partner to covenant with for God's glory? So the first question that we flows out of verse 31 here. Notice verse 31. Jesus says, it, is all, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus here is rejecting a view that was becoming very common and very popular within the religious establishment of that day. And that is, what is the easiest way that I can get out of my messy, unfulfilling marriage? Jesus says here, you have heard that it was said, or it was also said more directly in this text. He is, he's again doing what He's done if you've not been with us. He's looking back to the Old Testament. He's saying, this is what the law said. Now here's how I'm interpreting that for you. Because he said in verse 17, remember, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I'm not at odds with the old covenant law, Jesus says. I'm just here to show you what the heart of God really was behind that law in the first place so you can live it out not to a lesser standard, but a greater righteousness that we all must have that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And what Jesus is quoting here is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. We don't have these verses on the screen, but if you want to remember those, or flip to those even now, you'll see that there is this, this civil law, this case law that is giving surrounding the handling of divorce among the people of Israel. But where we often fail to read this rightly, and what got the Pharisees off on the wrong track, and the scribes, and what can get us off on the wrong track, is we don't understand how that law was even functioning in Deuteronomy chapter 24. These commands, these restrictions, these restraints around divorce, it doesn't say, thou, you need to get a divorce. Even in Deuteronomy, it was not commanding divorce as a positive step that you need to have as an option for your life. No, if you go back and read that text, it's saying, if this happens, then we're going to put some constraints around it. 
We'll see later in Matthew 19, we do have this text, we're going to go there in a little bit, is that Jesus is going to say, God did not give this law to you as a good path. He gave it to you because of the hardness of your hearts. He knows what kind of people you are. And so He said, I'm going to put some protections around how this happens, particularly to protect the vulnerable and voiceless position of women. was not a command, it was an if, it was a when. And in the context, it was to prevent a wife from being passed around and exploited. So if you read that text, it says, if a woman is divorced and she goes on and marries another woman, then the first, the, the first husband is not allowed to marry her again. In that day and time, a, a female, a woman would have had a dowry. That is that if you were to marry a woman, you would have not just got the woman, but you would have got some type of monetary gain from it. And so men were trying to kind of play the system to not just pass her around to possess her sexually, but also because of potential monetary advantage. And And the Word of God says in Deuteronomy 24, It's an abomination for you to just kind of pass around this person and to use her in both those sexual or potentially material ways. So I'm going to put some constraints around this. This isn't just going to be do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. Here's a good example of this, I think. Some of us who have children... If you have an older child, just imagine, you're leaving and you say, if your brother or sister get into a fight, this is how I want you to handle it. You're not saying, I want your brother and sister to get into a fight. No, you're saying, if they get into a fight, this is how we're going to handle it so that the big brother doesn't beat the snot out of the little brother. There is set, a lot of the Old Testament law are this sort of civil laws that are centered around the hardness of the heart of Israel that says, I know how you are, and I know you're going to do this. I don't want you to do this, but if you do this, this is how it should happen so that big brother doesn't just beat the snot out of little brother. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day were completely missing the point. And two schools had taken form, the school of Shammai and Hillel, these Pharisee people and their positions. The school of Shammai had the more, what we might say, conservative position, that it was the indecency that, that Deuteronomy 24 talks about, said, you know, if, if, there, if your wife commits sexual adultery, then that's probably all that it's talking about. But what had became more popular was this school of Hillel that said an indecency was pretty much anything. And you can go and read these ancient documents that are even extra biblical that talk about this stuff. And we have the joke about burning the bacon, but it actually was a part of their things. Like, if your wife burnt your food, you could divorce her. If you found really any cause that made your life uncomfortable, then all you needed to do was get the proper paperwork filled out. 
And this is why Jesus says, says again in this passage, He's saying in all of His interpretation of the law of Matthew 5, that we must have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. They just want to get the right paperwork filled out so that they can live for themselves. They don't want to love. The focus of the conversation had moved from God's purpose for marriage, and particularly protection from women, to when and how can I just get by with getting a divorce. Causes and certificates, contracts, and compatibilities had moved to the center, not the love of God and the love of others. There's a horrible joke that I've heard sometimes in my life, and I, you know, part, sometimes I like to, when you say things out loud as a preacher, it makes them like, oh, okay, that's not so funny when you say it here. And so this isn't funny anyway, but I've heard this many times. A, a wife or a woman, say my wife is about to turn 40 here in a couple years, a few years. Wow, that's not good, is it, to say your wife's age in front of everybody? So anyway, I need to probably learn more from Jesus. She doesn't care. Uh, the joke is, oh, I guess you're ready to trade her in for two 20s. I'm glad none of you laughed, right? But that's, that's sadly something I've heard, probably from somebody in Cassie's family, but anyway. Uh, and it's like, okay. What's the, what's the underlying theme behind that joke? Is that you marry a woman for her beauty and her vigor, and when that kind of fades away, then it's time for a trade-in. And it may be a joke, but it's an attitude that pervades our culture that leads, if not to actual divorce, to what we might call a functional divorce of the heart. And this is, this is why we're connected to the same text we were at last week. That this is not divided. It's still on this topic of, of adultery. It's because you might say, well, I know I can't technically get a divorce. And I'm not technically going to do this trade-in, 220s. But I'm going to do it in my heart. I'm going to be filled with this lustful intent that now is not merely giving myself to my spouse that I committed myself to. But I'm going to make it look like I'm super holy and religious because I didn't technically do the thing you shouldn't do. And I'd be remiss to not point out that it can work both ways. For some of you in here who have been married or even you're, you're considering it, for a wife, that fun, adventurous, interesting man that you dated maybe one day or maybe already can just look like a sack of a old, that old sack of potatoes. You know, the one that started to get mushy and grow the little things? He, that You look over him at the couch and you're like, what's going on here? Or he sat there so long in that recliner or that chair, you start to think that maybe he's just an appendage of it. And so you start to think, Man, it sure would be nice to upgrade the furniture. Or at least rearrange it. And some do literally, and then some do again figuratively in their hearts. Some of you may want a physical upgrade on your spouse, and others of you may want an emotional intimacy upgrade on your spouse. Spouse. 
Are you looking to a product to consume for your glory or a person to partner with for God's glory? Some of us look at other people, spouses, and relationships like we think, I need, I need you like I need a boat to make my Saturdays fun. I need you like I need a maid to keep, to keep my house looking a certain way or like I need a mower or a lawnsman. I need you to give me babies. I need you to make me happy. I need you to make me look good. I need you to fulfill my preferences and my passions. And in as far as you do not meet my consumeristic needs, you are no longer valuable to me in the way that really matters. What Jesus is speaking to here is a consumeristic view of marriage. And we, if we are going to battle this, we have got to admit it at the level of the heart. That this is complicated and this is messy and it's confusing. But we have to be able to admit the temptations and rationalizations. Some of you in this room have heard sayings like this and maybe you've said things like this and it's okay, I don't think it's bad, I did it. You say things like this, divorce is not even in my vocabulary. Okay, well maybe it is, maybe it's not. But some of you are in denial. You're saying it's not in my vocabulary, but it's in my fantasy. And if you don't have somebody, first of all, the Lord, but a good friend that you can go to who you know loves Jesus, and you can say, listen, I don't, I don't really want to do this, but I just need to say things have been hard. And I would be lying to say that I haven't wondered what would my life be like without this person in it. We think it's super spiritual and holy not to talk about those things, just like lust, like last week. But what happens is just like with lust, is you process this stuff in your heart by yourself for all these years. And it's like with, it's like with gender identity or stuff. You just show up one day and you just say, this is me, accept me. The same thing happens in this view of divorce. Is all of a sudden you show up one day and you just say, I've not loved them for the last 10 years. Like, we want a culture here to where we talk about that for the 10 years. And it's okay. You're not going to be shamed. You're not going to be silenced. You're not going to be intimidated to say, oh, okay, you know, we, don't, we can't deal with that. I remember one time in my life when Cassie and I were going through one of our many hard times in our marriage. And I remember sharing with a few people, hey, this is really confusing right now and it's really scary. And it was like crickets. And it was just met with something like, well, you know, all marriages have hard times. I'm sure it'll be okay. And what I told myself in my head that day is I will never talk to anybody else again about my marriage. Because I kind of risk being vulnerable and nobody was mean, but because but it was just like nobody wanted to like admit in front of one another how hard it was. So we want to say that if we want to be faithful to Jesus, I think we've got to admit how hard it is. 
It's really hard to go to bed with someone when your back's turned to each other. Ever how many times you've said, don't let the sun go down on your anger, and there you find yourself laying there, knowing, knowing Kat, we both know, I can't speak for her, both know each other's awake, or you're mad because you know the other person's not awake, and you are? How can that person be sleeping right now? And all the sympathy in the world, that happens to, to, to us at least. I can't say us all, maybe. But it's one thing for that to be a night or a week, but some people, that's a, that's a long extended season. It's hard to feel so lonely in the place that you thought you were going to feel the most safe and loved. It's hard when it starts to feel like every conversation is a misunderstanding. And you start to tell yourself, I think talking just makes things worse. It's very hard when you start to feel your, a hatred coming in your heart towards the person that you stood in front of a group of people and said that you would love and cherish till death do you part. It's hard when you start to think, I think I'd actually sin less if I just went ahead and got a divorce. It's hard when you start to think, I think our children are worse off if we're married than we're not. It's hard when you start to think, you are taking the best years of my life away from me when I could be out having fun and accomplishing my dreams and goals. And I just have to do conflict resolution with you. It's hard when you feel like your life is now wrapped up in a relationship with someone that that relationship seems to be taking more than you thought it would give. And so before we get too high and mighty to these Pharisees, maybe we start to resonate with them trying to figure out some way that we could work this out where it was clean and not messy, no fault. Let's just get the certificate. We've got to talk about these things. Jesus talks about them as uncomfortable as it is. Or you'll go some weird place where you're like becoming like some romantic poet that says, well, this is just all bad because humans weren't created for monogamous relationships. Do you realize that most of this so-called deep philosophy doesn't flow because of somebody just had an intellectual encounter with ideas? It's because they had a moral issue going on in their lives? And all of a sudden, they got really interested in studying the history of marriage. But it's hard. I've said this so many times, I can say it again, Cassie doesn't care. I mean, you've all heard it a hundred times. I remember one time her looking at me on my birthday and saying, you know what? It's been a long time since I wished you were dead. There, that's her great compliment. She should, she should get a job at Hallmark writing birthday cards. But she meant it as a compliment because we'd been through such a hard time and she was thinking, he's a pastor. Di you know, divorce is kind of like, if I did it, it's not, it's not like, it's, it's harder for us. It's worse. It's more complicated and confusing. And so it's like, my only way out is for him to just die. 
So th- this is not a message that I'm giving to you from somebody who's like nailing marriage. And, and probably if most of you are honest in here, you're, if you're married, you're not nailing it. And we want all of you in here who are single and are aspiring to marriage to remember this one day. Those of you who are single or maybe even called to celibacy and you're sitting alone in your room just thinking, oh my goodness, they're just over there having a date night every night, you know, with candles. You just need to talk to some married people. Marriage is a beautiful blessing, but there's just as many married people tempted over here thinking, can you imagine what that person's doing over there who's single right now? I bet they're just getting to read a book and quiet and drink tea and watch whatever movie they want. Don't have to worry about finding matching socks because they only have their own socks. Tell you, there's a lot of envy and a lot of disunity that happens in the church because we don't tell the truth about these things. But we need to tell the truth. Someone else was asked, have you ever considered divorce? And they replied, not divorce, but murder many times. I don't say this to make light of this, but it is a serious issue and I just want us, we need to be together in this. It's disciples of Jesus. We need to learn to think about it, to talk about it. And one thing that was told to me in our counseling around this issue that was so hard and it may not be harder, it may not be a male-female thing, just all of us, is we've got to all be able to be needy. I did not want to have to be a needy husband and a needy parent. I wanted to be the person who could show y'all all how it was done. And that's a lot of pride gets built up in your life when you realize you are equally as needy of the grace of God as anybody else. And marriage, among other things, will do that to you. One more side note on this point as we think about the heart of God behind verse 31 is as churches, I think we need to own where we miss the point, and I can't speak for all churches, but Jesus is here speaking up for mistreated women who had no voice. Women couldn't get a divorce. When you have, you think about the woman of the well who's been married all these times. She was, she had either been discarded or she was just running, running to flee from it. Like if you can't join them, beat them. If you can't beat them, join them. But sadly, a lot of this text has been taken to heap further abuse on women who come to churches or pastors and say, "My marriage is really hard." And I feel like there may be some, there's, uh, there's abuse going on. But because my husband's not technically had an affair, they can be told just to shut up and take it. As if the only two options are get the divorce or just shut up and take it. If I didn't know of this, and so often I wouldn't be saying it, and I just want to say that this is a complicated issue. And while we do believe, as we're going to see in verse 32, that Jesus lays out a pathway towards only certain things being exceptions for a legitimate divorce, is that doesn't mean that you have to be alone as you process that and talk about that, whether male or female in this room. 
Because whatever we think of marriage and ever how complicated it is, we are not viewing people as products to be consumed. So it leads to this second question. Are you looking to a product to be consumed in a person? Just to give you that good Saturday, give you that high, give you that hope, give you that accomplishment? Or our second question, are you looking for a partner to covenant with for God's glory? So notice verse 32. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So again, Jesus here, but I say to you, giving us the heart of God. We want to notice something here that connects with that last thing that we spoke about. Everyone who divorces his wife. That who, what Jesus is talking to here is not like the Pharisees and the scribes are an exception. There's not special rules for special people in positions of power. But there is on this exception Jesus gives except on the ground of sexual immorality. And we're going to see the reason that this is the exception is because before God, a covenant that has been made, that has been ratified in the consummation of that marriage... And sexual morality, therefore, is a breach of that. There's a lot of different views on what this means. There's some people who would say it's only talking about if you, were, if you find that there's sexual morality during the betrothal period, like Mary and Joseph. There's others who think it is you, you get married to somebody and you find out that they didn't tell you about this illicit premarital sex life that we have. There's some who think it's merely adultery. But really this word, porneia, is the most general word for sexual immorality. And we think if we understand this and don't read it as, tell me the checklist, right? Remember, the whole point of Jesus doing this Sermon on the Mount is not for you to walk away with your checklist. But sadly, we even do that to this issue. It's not about your checklist. He's talking about a heart. A heart. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about this in the realm of even abandonment. So this tension comes in in 1 Corinthians 7, 13 through 16. It says, if a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. That is, they are holy. What he's saying here is that living, living in this relationship, albeit as incompatible and undesirable as possible, is that the presence of the believing spouse in that home causes this sphere of the presence of God to be there. Why? Because if you read in the context of 1 Corinthians, it's that person is a temple of the living God. So wherever you go, you bring the temple of God there. He goes on to say, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Accept it. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That is, if they abandon you, you're not enslaved to, to say, this, this divorce has me bound. It says, God has called you to peace. 
Death is also an issue, but it connects to this as well in Romans 7 too. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So again, many debates, great books written on these issues, but the best that I can see it personally is that this unfaithfulness sexually, this abandonment that would have to be teased out in a lot of ways, just I'm leaving, I'm gone, I'm no longer committed, or death, both make divorce permissible in a way that does not lead, as Jesus says, to that person's next sexual act with someone, even if in marriage being adultery. And notice this is what is said as the consequence, that if there is an illegitimate divorce, a divorce that has not taken place due to those reasons, then the first act of sex in the new marriage will be an act of adultery. Now I think we need to say this does not mean that the person will be in perpetual adultery. But it is saying that that new, that new sexual act has, has led to a breach of a covenant in God's eyes. Why? And this drives us to what the point is of this. A partner to covenant with for God's glory. It's because in the truth, true story of God, marriage is not a social construct created by men for a contractual agreement. It's a mysterious and magnificent covenant relationship that is completed in the eyes of God. Some of you may be asking, well, where does Jesus get this high view of marriage? And why does He take this so seriously? I think we have the text up here of Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12. And we may get to this if we ever get to chapter 19 in the book of Matthew. But I want to read these verses to you. Because this, this teases this out a little more. And we can't dissect all of this as we're doing chapter 5. But right now it says, And the Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So there supports what I was saying earlier. This really was what they're asking. It's not just me saying that. And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus here is rooting this in the story. For anybody who was to say, Jesus doesn't talk about marriage, sexuality, or gender. Matthew 19.3. Here we are. And he goes on. Verse 5 it is. 4 and 5 we just read. And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is rooting this in the story of God. Jesus believes in what Genesis 1 and 2 teach. That this is the pattern for human flourishing. This is the good design of God for His kingdom and for all people in this world. And He affirms the creation of marriage by God as a covenant relationship before God and before one another. This is what this language of leave and cleave and one flesh are talking about. That there is a deep, 
connection made through this covenant commitment that man is not to separate. It's not talking about outsiders. It's talking also about the two in commitment. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. So verses 7 and 8, the Pharisees ask, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Deuteronomy 24. Verse 8, Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And to show you how ingrained this easy divorce culture was then, and how important it was for Jesus to talk about it amongst His disciples. Verses 10-12, through 12, So the disciples said to Him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. What are they saying? What is the case? If I've got to be committed to someone, even when they don't make me happy then maybe I shouldn't get married. If I'm not going to have an easy way out of this, then why do it? They've missed the point as usual. He just told them. But we get there ourselves. If you have never in your marriage got to the point where you said, what in the world am I doing? I hope you never get there. But you might. Another beautiful saying of my wife is, is, would you remarry after I died? I don't know why anybody would go through that a second time. More, more encouraging hallmark words. It's hard. It's really hard. And so we've got to remember why it's so beautiful. Particularly those among us who may have been through divorces. You may resent the very institution of marriage by God in the first place. Some of you who are thinking about marriage may be scared to death. Jesus isn't here to give us a vision of marriage that's about just dealing with the mitigation of how hard it is, though. He wants us to see it rooted in a beautiful vision that God has given this world. It's not about managing the fallen world as best we can to get whatever fleeting happiness we can. But it's about leading us to see it as a part of God's creational design that we might grow through our covenant commitment to one another just as we do to Him. One beautiful picture of that before we flesh it out as leading ourselves to the Lord's Supper is some of you may have heard of a theologian named B.B. Warfield. He lived from 1851 to 1921. He was the head of Princeton Seminary. Some of you may not remember that most of those Ivy League schools started out as, as schools to train people for the ministry. And Princeton was one of those. And Prince and B.B. Warfield of Princeton was especially known for his defense of the authority of God's Word as Scripture. So much so, some people have wrongly said that he like invented all of the stuff around believing God's Word is inerrant and true. He was such a defender, some people have forgot that that was just the, the common teaching of the ancient church and they pinned it all on him. But that was, he was such a, a proponent for that. 
But what you may not know about B.B. Warfield is that in the same year that he entered ministry, he married a, a lady named Annie Kincaid and he took her on a honeymoon to Germany. And during that honeymoon, there was a fierce lightning storm and she was struck by lightning and paralyzed. Rest of her life. Not, not, not what you're wanting to happen on your honeymoon. And because of her extraordinary needs the rest of our life, he barely left his house for more than two hours at a time the rest of their marriage. I don't think it's a coincidence that that type of love for a spouse happens in conjunction with someone's deep love for the Word of God. These two things are not divorced. When this man is defending the truth of the story of God, he's fighting in his heart for the truth of his marriage. And when he loves his wife to the point that he could be traveling the world with the use of all of his great gifts, that he can't leave her side for more than two hours at a time because he loves her. There's something much deeper and more beautiful than a consumeristic view of relationships and marriage going on. It's believing what Jesus believed about Genesis. That God created this beautiful gift of marriage that wasn't first of all about the two people involved, but was about Him. It was that a world that needed to see His love displayed in people loving one another even when it's really hard. When it's so hard, we have to remember that marriage didn't start with a fallen world. It started with a beautiful world. It started with God. And wherever you're at in your marriages now or wherever you will be one day in your marriages, is you need to remember that that person you're looking at over there is not just an old moldy sack of potatoes, but is an image bearer of God. You've got to remind yourself of that. And you've got to retell yourself that story. You've got to tell each other, you've got to remind one another that, that this person that you're in this relationship with is not someone that you're just to tolerate, but is someone you're to celebrate. But that's going to take some work. You're going to not, you're going to not keep a record of wrongs, which most of us want to do. I've said dumb things to this like Cassie before. I know 1 Corinthians says love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, but since you're not in touch with reality, I'm going to have to start taking notes. I'm going to keep a list of every day you're in a bad mood and then show it to you. Welcome to being married to me. That's a really love, isn't it? But if we know the story, then we don't start with the list of what's wrong with this person. We start with the list of what's right with this person. We remember why we fell in love with them in the first place. And we seek to cultivate that and talk about it and stoke it and flame that fire of the image of God. And whether you're single or married, divorced or whatever, this is why we all need to be reminded of this. 
And for those of us who are married, we need other people to come alongside us and ask us, hey, what have you celebrated about your spouse lately? What have you told them you love about them lately? Throw a little Rod Stewart in there. It just came to my mind, right? I, can't, I was going to start singing it. Have I told you lately that I love you? Anyway, who's Rod Stewart? Some of you are all asking. But remember this. Marriage is a gift of God. But then remember the fall. Humanity rebelled against God. They wanted to do this thing without God. And that's what, where things go wrong. Divorce was not God's design, but it came on the back of disobedience and doubt and distrust. So when marriage is really hard, the question is, well, what did you expect? Did you expect that if you read all the right books and followed all the right people on social media that you are now going to be the enlightened person that doesn't have these difficulties well, I got news for you. You're in for a rude awakening. You need to expect, whether you are entering marriage or in marriage, to be deeply needy of the grace of God every day of your life. And where you find yourself resenting the fact, like me, that you are so perpetually and continually needy, you need to remind yourself that God did not set up that wrong expectation for your marriage. You did. Because if you know the story, you know that though this is a beautiful gift of God, it is full of two broken, needy people who are going to be clinging to Jesus till the end. And that's what it's all about. In Ephesians 5, Paul quotes this same verse that Jesus quotes from Genesis. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he says this mystery is for profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The disciples, why even get married? Jesus, Paul, remember Genesis. We get married because marriage exists to paint a picture of the covenant faithfulness of God. And all of us in here need to remember who we are in that story. We're all the wayward bride. I am the adulterous spouse of Jesus. And He would have every right in the world to walk away from me. We are the Hoseas. Or the Gomers, that is. If you know the story of Isaiah. Where God tells this prophet Hosea to go and marry a prostitute who's not going to be faithful to Him so the people of God can see His faithfulness. And so while divorce for sexual immorality, Jesus has said here is permissible, is even where it's permissible, it still should break our hearts. We're called to see the story of marriage as the story of God's glory. 
we're called not to seek a person or begin to see a person in our lives as someone that we consume as a product to give us gratification, but to see as a partner that helps us live for the glory of God in this world. And we trust that because He gave Himself for us, because He is the faithful spouse, that we are not alone in it. I know some of you in here feel so alone maybe in your marriages. Or you feel so alone because you're not in a marriage. But Jesus wants to remind you that He is with you. And just as we're called not to engage others, we're not to engage Him as a product to be consumed. But as a relationship to be enjoyed. But to do so, we must engage marriage. Whether you're entering it, engaging it, you've exited, or as an encourager of it, not as consumers, but as the covenant-keeping followers of King Jesus. God, we thank You for Your faithfulness. And we pray now as we come to Your table that we would celebrate You as our great bridegroom who gave Yourself for us. We thank You, God, that You died for our literal divorces where they were not in accordance with Your will and, and for our functional divorces where we've just stayed together to maintain our image or look good, but in our hearts we're far from our spouses. We thank You that You died for those who haven't sinned in these ways but have been shamed in these ways, who've been abused by others, even the church around this issue. And we thank You that You've risen to give us life and hope today. We confess our need as we look to the table, not only for forgiveness, but for the promise of the new covenant for the Spirit to empower us to be faithful in our marriages, to be faithful in our singleness, to be faithful to You and to Your good and true story for ourselves and our world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.